Good morning, good morning, good Monday morning to you. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0. I am thrilled to be back here with you. Thrilled to start another week with you. Another week in February. That sounds a whole lot better than saying January, but not nearly as good as we'll say May. But there you go. And so I hope I am thrilled that you are, uh, you've tuned in to LE 2.0. We are still with the training wheels on this show, still feeling our way a bit. I've got two segments, one where I, this show is built around um, the concept of pra practical idealism because we don't talk about being idealistic nearly enough. I am a practical idealist. I am very proud of that fact. And I'm here to talk with you about a couple of different things. So in my A block, I'm endeavoring uh, to um, bring you stories about idealists. And today, um, the idealist I want to talk about is uh, somebody who is very important to the history of the LGBTQ community. I want to talk to you about Harvey Milk. Um, he's an idealist. Um, of hope, uh, who paid attention um, to the world. Ultimately, of course, he paid the ultimate price as well. Um, now, you may remember that Harvey Milk's life was the subject of a movie titled Milk that starred Sean Penn and which earned Penn a Best um, Actor Oscar. It was a powerful film. I mean, I'm, I haven't seen it for a while, and frankly... Uh, Working on this piece has reminded me that I want to go back and, and look at the uh, see it again. Um, but Milk's story is about an idealist, yes, but about someone who came to the party very late. So Harvey Milk was born in 1930. He grew up in a New York City suburb. He later went to college um, in, um, in upstate New York where, where he got a degree in mathematics, and then he entered the Navy. So... He's starting to be himself, find his space in the late 1940s and in early 50s. After he left the Navy, he had a series of jobs. First as a teacher, then as an actuarial, and then as a Wall Street researcher. Through all of that, he remained fairly hidden, um, fairly closeted. He dated younger men. He had a penchant for dating younger men, but he... Um, hid his sexuality by all accounts. Um, he was, at one account, described as a man's man. Okay, well, whatever that means. Um, and by all accounts, he was apolitical. Never took a stand about anything re relative to politics. And in fact, um, was averse to dating people who were involved in political movements. So, fast forward to the early 1970s. You know, the the social movement has been going on, flower power and all of that stuff. And at that point, Milk um, and his boyfriend, again, a very younger man, moved to San Francisco, where Milk ultimately opened up a camera store in the Castro district of San Francisco. Now, back in the early 1970s, the Castro district, um, while it had a number of uh, LGBTQ people as residents, was not known as a gay um, Location, not certainly like it's known today. I've been to the Castro, by the way, and and it is quite a lovely place, actually. Um, but 
once he started, he opened his camera store, um, it was at that point that he began to pay attention to the world around him. And that, you know, and you have to remember what the landscape was like in the early 19 and mid-1970s. I mean, um, you know, it was it was a time where oral sex was illegal. Sorry, I just used that phrase on the air, but I think I'm okay with it. Um, where police were regularly harassing gay men. They were going into clubs. They were beating gay men in those clubs where there was rampant discrimination against gay people. Um, and, uh, and on top of that, Milk looked around and he saw a political system that was oriented towards rich, straight, white, for the most part, Catholic men who controlled everything in San Francisco. And in 1973, Milk decided that he would run for, count, um, for city supervisor. He had no experience, no political apparatus of any type. And yet, what Milk had was he had persistence and energy and an imagination. And it turned out, he turned out to be a fairly good speaker. And in the 73 election for a city supervisor, he came in 10th out of 32 candidates. Not too bad for somebody who had no political experience. Um, after that, White um, uh, Milk began speaking out more about the invisible people. And at that time, in the mid-70s, uh, you may recall those of you who are older about Anita Bryant and um, how she got on a very, very conservative religious movement. Uh, a campaigning against gays and lesbians. And in fact, that movement hit us in St. Paul because St. Paul had passed an ordinance protecting gays and lesbians, and then that ordinance was repealed uh, by popular vote. Of course, that all changed eventually, and we're now very protective, thank you very much, of gays and lesbians. But um, there, there was even a bill um, uh, pending in California in the 1976-77 time frame. There was a California bill pending to ban gays and lesbians from teaching school in California public schools. I mean, will you think about that? Banning gays and lesbians from being teachers. Um, and in the 1977 county supervisor election, Milk's main opponent was also gay, but that candidate didn't want to talk about how gays and lesbians were being oppressed um, and, and what Milk, Milk wanted to do is he wanted to talk about it all the time and he wanted to talk about that oppression head on and in fact, as reported in Wikipedia this is what Milk said quote, we don't want sympathetic liberals we want gays to represent gays I represent the gay street people the 14 year old runaway from San Antonio we have to make up for hundreds of years of persecution we have to give hope to that poor runaway kid from San Antonio they go into the bars because churches are hostile they need hope they need a piece of the pie unquote and so milk ran for city supervisor and he won in November of 1977 by a 30% margin against 16 other candidates unfortunately he was in the office only for a year before he was killed by disgruntled former city supervisor Dan White White also killed on the same day uh, the San Francisco mayor George Moscone um, before he went though Milk gave what became known as his hope speech and I'm going to read to you just a little bit about that speech. Because it was hope that Harvey Milk offered. 
And here's part of it. And the young gay people in Altoona, in the Altoona, Pennsylvanias, and the Richmond, Minnesotas, who are coming out and hear Anita Bryan in television and her story, the only thing they have to look forward to is hope. And if you give them, and you have to give them hope, hope for a better world, hope for a better tomorrow, hope for a better place to come to if the pressures at home are too great, hope that it will all be right without hope. Not only gays, but the blacks, the seniors, the handicapped, the, the us's, the us's will give up. And if you help elect um, the Central Committee and other officers, more gay people, that gives a green light to all who feel disenfranchised, a green light to move forward. It means hope to a nation that has given up because if a gay person makes it, the doors are open to everyone. You know, um, Harvey Milk suggested to each of us through his idealistic, empathetic heart that everyone's heart can be awoken through paying attention to the oppression that is around us. That's all. I mean, Harvey Milk had no, no underpinnings in his experience that would make him in any way be willing to rise up and speak on behalf of other people, the us's in the world. But he did, because he did pay attention, and because he said eventually, at one point, that if I don't, if I don't talk about it, then I have to shut up. It was either a put-up or shut-up view that he had of the world. We need more Harvey Milks out there today. We need more Harvey Milks to step forward, not only for LGBTQ people, but for everyone who is quote-unquote other in our society. Think about that. Read up on Harvey Milk. Read up on people who pay attention and then no longer want to put up with oppression. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0. When we come back, I'll give you the next segment of the show. Thanks so very much for listening. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Lowry Hill Meats, your neighborhood full-service butcher shop that works directly with family farms. Using whole animals gives Lowry Hill Meats the benefit of preparing custom cuts and dry aging. They offer beef, lamb, goat, pork, and poultry, including whole duck, roasting hens, turkey, quail, pheasant, and Cornish hens. Their sausages are made fresh in-house weekly using 40 rotating recipes. Try their handcrafted sandwiches. They are second to none. Lowry Hill Meats is located at 1934 Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis or online at LowryHillMeats.com. Get ready for the 2018 Blue State Ball. Hi there, Matt McNeil encouraging you to join us for a great annual tradition for Democrats and like-minded left-leaning individuals. The Blue State Ball is set for Saturday, March 10th at the same great location we were at last year, the Blaisdale Mansion in Minneapolis. Coming back to the Twin Cities are two of the station's favorites, Tom Hartman and Norman Goldman. 
We'll begin the evening with a VIP event starting at 5.30 with hors d'oeuvres and drinks. And at 7 p.m., the general admission begins. With it being an election year, we are expecting a ton of special political guests. And as always, Mike McAtee, many of the great weekend hosts, and myself will be there too. Hang out with great Democrats, check out the sponsor table, and enjoy the rousing speeches taking us into the evening. VIP tickets are $100 each and are limited. General admission tickets are $35 each. Go to am950radio.com for ticket information. That's am950radio.com, Saturday, March 10th at the Blaisdale, 2322 Blaisdale Avenue in Minneapolis. It's the 2018 Blues. Ball. We'll see you there. Guess who called me the other day? You did. Hi, Mark Sommerfeld of Computer Revolution in Roseville. I want to thank AM950 listeners who called to thank us for supporting the station. So here's an offer exclusive to 950 listeners. Bring your broken computer or cell phone to our Roseville store, say I'm an AM950 listener, and you'll receive $20 off any repair. Computer Revolution with cell phone repair, located in Roseville at Highway 36 and Fairview Avenue, or call 651-633-6600. And thanks. This is Ken Hagland of Minnesota Hospice, inviting you to listen to our brand new show, airing on AM 950 on Saturdays from noon to one. The Minnesota Hospice Show looks forward to discussing how we honor life and to exploring the physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional issues we experience throughout all stages of life. Learn how hospice is the new face of hope and how it's your benefit, your choice. Join us Saturdays at noon and check us out online at minnesotahospice.com. And I am back. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0. A practical idealist who is not afraid to talk about idealism and, in fact, someone who wants to get that word in the lexicon, in the popular social media. I want to get that word on the tips of far more tongues than has been the case of late. And so in this segment here, I want to talk, I always try and talk about an experience that I've had um, as a result of my practical idealism. Um, I'm, you know, a place where my idealism has taken me to. Um, and, and recently I had one of those places. I'm entitling this Peace, Fast Beating Hearts. And so... This is something that happened to me recently when I led the retreat for a private company. Now, I need to be also very careful about um, guard, guarding some um, confidences here, and so I'm going to speak in generalities. Um, but as a reminder, uh, my day job is that of a speaker and trainer on human inclusivity. I go across the country and into Canada uh, training to make places more welcoming to everyone who is quote-unquote different or quote-unquote other. And part of this, um, of what I do, involves fostering better team communication. So a company reached out to me, we'll just call it Company A, um, with a request that I lead one day of a two-day retreat that the company was having. It turned out I'm, I was the very first in 26 years of that company's existence. I was, I was the very first outside facilitator that they've ever had. And in fact, the company had come under new ownership um, within the last year after being founded and run by um, a single man for um, uh, a single owner for 25 years. Um, as I prepared for the retreat 
and you know gathered information and spoke with different people. I gathered and I understood that the founder, the single, this founding single person, had created an environment that was um, toxic, uh, particularly as it relate related to female team members. Now, I'm some of you listening right now. Um, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about toxic work environments, and um, and they're not fun whatsoever. And um, as I conducted this retreat, I got a real inside view about how they affect people. So I have various devices that I use to get people to what I call base, where we get past all those facades that we put up. Hi, how are you? And, you know, we never get past that where we really talk about what's in our hearts. I, I have a, a number of different ways I get people to the place where they're ready to talk and listen, like real talk, like real listen. It's really about paying attention, like I spoke about in the first segment about Harvey Milk. And so one of the devices that I use is a, called a talking circle. Um, it's a controlled conversation where everyone actually literally gets into a circle um, where everyone has the opportunity to have a say. Now, there are certain, you know, rules about um, talking circles. It's not a gripe session. It's not a free-for-all. I use prompts, so I throw a prompt out there for people to speak. For example, a prompt would be, you know, how, um, uh, how in, uh, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inclusive or not inclusive with this organization for this reason. And then I have everybody go around and they get to say um, in an honest way, hopefully, um, that um, how they are or aren't inclusive. So for this group, we had 20 people in the circle, half men, half women. And generally, the talking circles take time. That They've got to take at least two hours. Um, and that's because it takes time for people to become brave because it... People have to feel there are rules about the talking circle. One of those rules is, you know, when you have a talking stick, I use a, a um, brooch as a talking stick. Um, and so while you hold it, you have the floor. And when you pass the talking stick on, the next person has the floor. There's no crosstalk. You don't get to say something in response to the person who has something to say who has the talking stick. But there are other rules as well. You can pass if you don't want to speak. Um, it's not mandatory that you speak. Another rule is that there's no retribution. So if you say something in the talking circle, essentially it stays in the talking circle. It's not to be used against somebody later on outside of the talking circle. And so I, I go at length about these rules to get people to feel comfortable. But nonetheless, it usually takes at least an hour going around the circle of several times before I hit what I call pay dirt. And by pay dirt, I mean where people finally feel that it's safe for them to speak up and to speak from their heart. And that's what we want. We want people talking from their heart. How in the world can we get to a place where um, organizations are more inclusive, where they are more respectful, where people feel as if they matter, if at least we can't speak honestly. And so we've got, it takes time to get there. And so with this company, as we went around um, the circle um, several times, you know, um, the comments started to come in about how things had been difficult under the former owner. And um, 
uh, as as uh, as um, I heard those comments, I heard comments about people feeling as if they didn't matter, that an elite a group controlled. I mean, I even heard the phrase "boys club" for that group. Interestingly, how that also plays into my earlier story about Harvey Milk. And then, after an hour, we really started hitting the pay dirt. We re- an hour, hour and a half in, I started getting really heartfelt emotions, including shame. Shame over the fact that people had put up with the toxicity, that they had put up with the environment, that they were sh- ashamed that they went along you know, and finally, a woman in the in the group she labeled it trauma. Trauma that they had undergone trauma in the in the former administration of this company. And then, as women particularly spoke, but I heard some men speak as well. Um, but with women in particular, one phrase kept getting repeated over and over as they would start to speak. They would, they would hesitate. They're, you could see that they were gathering the strength, that they were gathering the bravery to, to speak up, to finally say what it was on their heart that, that had been bothering them. So the one phrase I kept hearing is, my heart is beating so fast. I heard this several times from several different women. Okay, my heart is beating so very fast. Give me a second, and I will, I will now speak. I will tell you what's on my mind. And of course, my role as what's called the circle leader, I encourage people, take your time, take your time. And when they did speak, I said, how brave of you. What great honesty. And by the time we were done, by the time we were done, There were wet eyes, total vulnerability in the room. People were so exposed. I praised everyone. And then I said, now you have a start. Now you have the beginning to go forward, to heal, to fix things from what they had been. And there's no way that you can get to that start without first being honest, about being vulnerable, about having your heart beat fast. And I share all of this to highlight that it takes real bravery to, fee- to face our oppressors. And that many times means confronting ourselves over why it was that we allowed ourselves to be oppressed. We do. And who, uh, query even five years or ten years from now, what will we be thinking about this time in our country? We all find ourselves in situations where we have little control. I mean, often in the workplace, of course, you can always say there's the option to quit. But you tell that to moms who are working, who have no time to apply for other jobs, who are afraid And I share this story because the pathway to change, whether it's for work or it's personal or our country, it takes work. It takes facing our fears of being put in uncomfortable places, of being vulnerable. But it is such important work 
because the benefits to you and to those you love are so incredibly important. We finished with that talking circle with Company A, and I had people coming up to me thanking me for getting them to a place where they can now finally have conversations. And I share this story with you because it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to have bumpiness. It's okay to get past oppression and toxicity. It's okay to do that. It is. Here's your homework. I give you homework after every LE 2.0 show, at the end of every show. And here it is. Look around at your life and what's in your life or that of others where there is oppression. Take a look. Really see it. And then ask yourself, what would it take for your heart to beat fast to address that oppression? What would it take for your heart to beat fast to at least speak of that oppression to the oppressors? And after you do that, after you do that speaking, what would it take for you to show up and support someone else who is facing oppression? That's your homework. Please do that this week. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world with Ellie 2.0 and AM 950. If you enjoyed the show, email me at Ellie2.0radio at gmail.com. Let me know what you'd like. Um, a big thanks to my producer, um, Eric Larson. Thank you so very much. We're back. Bye-bye. <laughs>